Yeah. Uh, I address you by name. You can call me Amma. I like Amma. Let, uh-huh. let me tell you why I like Amma. Amma okay. has many meanings, and one of the meanings of Amma means dear one. And I refer to most people that I know as dear one. So it is both a respectful way of addressing me and mutual. And for me, that feels like exactly what is needed in our contemporary situation. Something that is respectful and mutual. So, in uh, talking to you, I'm thinking of we are terms, whatever term, transcending our, our, um, we are learning to transcend our upsets. Because if we go and act on upsets and disturbance, we can hurt other people plus ourselves. So, it seems to me that we have to practice over and over and over every day, all the time with creating the language that comes from what you're teaching in in, in sending in oh god uh, was it Marlon Brando even couldn't speak sometimes (laughs) Um, the words I wanted to say of uh, caring and extending like in listening alone just to listen to the words that the person's saying and knowing that that person has come from a history of whatever it is in his mind. And when you can understand what they're trying to tell you by listening carefully, you're giving them a gift not only to them but to yourself because you might learn something from them. That was me that I was thinking I didn't need anyone to teach me anything. But... um, and, and then that's, that creates a uh, very peaceful and loving atmosphere when you can listen and not have your mind going in every direction about what you're going to say next. Because that's all about yourself. It's not about them. And I, I like, uh, I have some different words I use in expressing than what you do because I don't know all of the language of the Buddha. Um, but I don't think it matters as long as we're all trying to get over ourselves, our, our selfish ways, our narcissism and smallness, and be, be more magnanimous. And in that way, dwelling on these words of kindness and compassion and so forth, we can contribute to others. It's not just about me. It used to be a lot. So, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. What I appreciated about what you were saying is the um, the fact of accepting when you're not in the good mood. What I understood you to say, it's kind of like that's part of you also, and part of meditating is not only that you will be serene and comfortable, but when you're upset, if you can be still and accept that part of you, because I mean, if we're here and it's all comfortable, we can all sit still and feel calm. But when you're in the 405 freeway and you're trying to get somewhere, it's a whole different thing going on in, in, in your brain. And what I try to do is, when I'm not that spot, 
maybe try to think about being in this spot mm-hmm. to just bring it down a couple of notches. Right. It wouldn't be as serene, but it brings it down a couple of notches. So thank you. Yes. yes. I I have lived um, I spent three months in the desert monastery at Mahapajapati and uh, near Joshua Tree National Park and in that three month period of time one month we were each on solitary retreat one month we were um, uh, overlapping together and doing uh, uh, sharing discussions about different aspects of our monastic life and then the the other month was was we were holding the ground while the other people were on the retreat and the routine that was happening there was we had a lot of solitary time for practice and we would meet for the meal time and we would meet in the evening time for chanting and then we would meet after the meal for a conversation about just different elements about our monastic life um, I have spent a lot of time living on my own since coming back to this country. And um, I have spent a lot of time in Colorado. And so I've, I usually spend several hours a day meditating, some of them inside and, and a lot of them outside on uh, these very special rock formations that are not far away from the hermitage where I was living. And, um, and then I've been doing writing and correspondence and a certain amount of teaching and then having groups at different times. When I go back to Colorado, it feels like it's time for me to do more writing and um, to talk um, a little bit more about some of the stuff that I have been through and some of the, the sense that I have about, about what feels is needed right now. Because um, the culture that I came out of, the monastic culture, has enormous richnesses in it but it was embedded in a cultural context that some things are not so relevant in our contemporary context. So, for example, the gender bias that was in the context that I came out of, it doesn't make any sense in this context, you know. And so um, there's, there's, there's a, a lot of interest to find a way of living the fullness of this life in a way that is congruent with, with, with the values of harmlessness and in a way that makes sense in our context. So I would like to spend some time writing about these things. Can you say more about the... You talked about creating a field. Can I work with the people that you... The fellow monastics, I guess. Can you talk more about that? Um, this languaging of creating a field, I don't know if it's familiar, if anybody's ever heard this before, but anytime you've got two people who are sitting together or anytime you've got a group, there's a, something that happens in the group that has a life of its own that's different than the individuals specifically that come to it, okay? When you have a, 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 a something that is created with the intention of... Of, of, of harmlessness, of kindness, of generosity, of service, of renunciation. 
when you have the intention towards working with you know the the habits that we experience and not acting from an unskillful place then you're setting an intention that extends past the 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 immediacy of of your being in the meditation hall okay so i don't know if you've experienced going to temples or to special places where people have been practicing but it has an energy to it and it has an energy to it even if the people are not doing the it that is supposed to be creating the energy of it okay so if you go to a monastery or a sanctuary or a retreat center or a place where there's a lot of people that practice it has a special feeling okay that special feeling is a field and that field is not dependent on the individuals who have been creating it and that field is not limited to the specific location of where it's happening so what we noticed in the monastery was as the field got very strong and people could connect to it even if they were far away so they could just think about the monastery or think about the nuns or think about things that we were doing and they felt totally supported through their thinking of what we were doing as if they were actually in it okay now a monastery is a place that has a life of its own kind of its own lifestyle yeah and people come and go so the monasteries that i have always lived in most of the monasteries that i've lived in have had open door policies people are welcome okay it's not just for the monastics yeah and so people come and they participate in many different ways they come and meditate they come and offer food they come and help they come and walk on the grounds they come and garden okay but it's an oasis for everybody to feel the nourishment of that and have that be part of their life the more people bring to the monastery the more the monastery generates this field the more this field then supports the people who come to it now i really had a kick out of you know at amravati for example you know this was a place that was um set up as a initially as a as a um in in world war 2 to get kids out of london okay and then it was set up as a boys home so it wasn't wasn't initially built as a monastery it was it, it looked like barracks and you know or you know and so it took quite an effort to shift it over and for it to become a monastery and then there was this big project to build the main temple there and we had a lot of tradesmen come in to do the building and i love tradesmen tradesmen are so great they're because they're like totally straightforward and they've got great senses of humor and they just say it like what it is okay so there are these two guys the the jcb driver what do you call a front backhoe what do you backhoe yeah yeah backhoe. a backhoe with with anyway one of those guys and with a um jackhammer okay so these two were in cahoots and they worked as a team and they were so rough these guys were rough they were so rough and they came and they would say you know i don't know what it is about this place <laughs> you know but i'm zipping up my zip before i leave the loo and i ain't cursing <laughs> and i don't know what's going on here <laughs> And one of the sisters was working on a, um, a, 
Prakriti, and she needed some help to mm-hmm. shift the, um, the concrete for the foundation, and she couldn't do it by herself, and it was over this muddy field, and she needed the special equipment that these guys had. And so she went over to them, she asked them if she, they would give, be willing to give her a hand. And they said, come on, sister, you know we'd never be able to say no to anything you asked of us. (laughs) 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 You know, so, you know, here are tradesmen who come on their day off, you know, to help the sisters, refused any sort of recompensation, were up to their thighs in concrete, you know, spent eight hours working really hard and did it just because of the joy of their hearts. And they did it, it wasn't because of the sisters, it was because they felt the field. They felt something special being there. And they were tradesmen doing their job, you know, which is something that they do everywhere. How do you take it with you outside of the monastery? How do you take it to the freeway? (laughs) Take it to the office where not everybody's playing the same game. You take it where you go by making a commitment that it's really important to do that and by spending as much time as you can, no matter what you're doing, cultivating that. So when it becomes a priority to live with these kinds of principles, not just for an hour a week or an hour a day, but to bring this into every part of your life, then the field starts to develop and generate and you become a walking field of your own. And people will notice that. The animals will notice that. Now, I look extraterrestrial, you know. (laughs) You know, so there's something about the way that I'm dressed which has a visual appearance But it's not the visual appearance by itself that people respond to me in the way that they do. It's not just the way, it's not my hairdo, you know. And so, you know, and so when there is really genuinely that commitment to to be present with everything, with every situation, with every person, it's just amazing the kinds of things that happen. You know, I was in L.A., and I was going to La Brea Tar Pits, and I'd asked somebody what the directions were. And she was telling me, and I knew as she was telling me, that she was telling me wrong directions. So I was listening very patiently until she finished. And then the next person that I asked, I asked another set of directions because I knew she was telling me incorrect. So this fellow was on his way to work, and it took us two and a half minutes to get through where are you from, where are you going, And then the rest, he walked me all the way there. And the rest of the conversation is what's really important in life. Okay, this is a total stranger in L.A., a couple blocks away from La Brea Tar Pits. Go figure. You know? But he was absolutely right there. Just right there. I wasn't the one that asked him. He was the one that brought it up. So there's something that happens when there's a willingness to live with that level of openness and responsiveness. 
that elicits that in others. And then the field grows. And it's really helpful to hang out with other people who are also doing the same thing. And to be careful around people who are completely going against that, you know, cutting across that, or poisoning that. You know, not in this kind of superior way, but just, you know, you know, there's this very lovely image. You know, we were planting a bunch of trees in the forest at Chithurst, and when you plant a tree, it looks like a stick. You can hardly even tell it's a tree. It just looks like a twig, you know. And a tree, you know, in the forest at Chitters, there's a lot of rabbits and a lot of deer. So you need to put a fence around it so that the deer don't get it and so that the rabbits don't get it. So it needs a fence that completely protects the entire thing, and it needs a stake that's really rooted deep in the ground, and it needs to be tied to the stake so that when the winds blow, it doesn't get pulled off. And for five years, you've got this thing where it's completely protected from the deer and the rabbits, and it's staked in, all right? After five years, you can take off the stake, but you kneel steep the rabbit guard, okay? After ten years, yeah, you can take away the 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 the, um, the deer guard, but you still need the rabbits to protect it from chewing the bark. After fifteen years, you can take away all of the supports, right? Spiritual practice is very similar. You need to be tethered in the ground. You need to be protected that the stuff is not going to come and eat that which is tender and fragile. You need to be careful that the stones are not going to blow you away because there will be storms. They can be guaranteed. How do you do that? What does that look like in your life? Really important questions. And really important to get that kind of time framework. This is not a a year or two until you're grounded enough so that you're not going to be blown away by storms. You know, this is long term. Till you really get a feeling of what it is to do this as a kind of lifestyle rather than just as a kind of hobby. the left-handed path. I actually went into science as a result of my interest in meditation. And the way that worked was I grew up in a very scientific family. My father is very, very scientifically oriented. So I grew up with science as a kind of staple. And I had, you know, contact with the Dhamma when I was 17 and had unshakable faith from the very beginning. And so I had sense that this was true. I didn't have any doubt about that. But I also had a sense that science was true. So I went into science as a way of challenging my spiritual practice. Mm. And the spiritual practice went. 
fortified it or something. I'm not yeah. sure what. <laughs> Ama, today in Southeast Asia, there are monks engaged in political protest and civil disobedience. And some, I think, are actually acting as community organizers, uh, protecting people from land takeovers and things like that. Do you understand them? Are, are they doing something that is consistent with their practice, or have they fallen off the wagon? Or how, how can I don't? How can you help me uh, me understand what they're doing? Mm-hmm. It seems uh, quite unusual. You know, people have an idea about what monks and nuns are, and um, there's a huge spectrum of what monks and nuns are that most people really find it completely bewildering to grasp, you know, the range of different um, roles that monks and nuns fulfill, okay? In Thailand, for example, um, the forest tradition is one end of the spectrum, and the forest tradition are the, was the tradition that I came out of, the Ajahn Chajan Sumedho tradition. That's one way end of one edge of a whole spectrum where the life is really about contemplation and a very clear uh, looking at what the Buddha's instructions were and, and living them as close as one can possibly manage. And the Buddha was clear in his instructions about um, uh, you know what he thought monks and nuns were supposed to be doing. Okay. There's a huge range of what monks and nuns actually do, and there's a huge range of the way monks and nuns keep their precepts, and that is normal. Because the Ajahn Chah tradition has been the most prominent and has been the one that's been the most visible in this country, then we think that's normal. Okay, so for example, you know, in our tradition, I haven't handled money in 20 years. Okay? In Thailand, there's probably less than 3% of the Theravadan monks that don't handle money. I have lived this way my entire life as a nun. For me, it's normal. And I see the value of it. But there's lots of people who don't live that way. Now, what are we going to do? I think what's really helpful is to recognize that different people have different experiences and have different educations and different ways of relating to all of this. Some of it will be more resonant with what you feel is helpful or congruent with your own understanding, and some of it will be less. It doesn't serve to be judgmental. It serves to be wise and skillful and compassionate. And what does that look like? When you've got this huge spectrum of this huge disparate um, take on the same thing, what it is to be a monk or a nun. Now, in Asia, the society is set up to support the monastics. In the West, it's not. And so what happens is the monasteries are often places which are 
phenomenally complicated, very full, enormously busy places because the monks and nuns are carrying an enormous amount of duties and responsibilities. Enormous. Now, I didn't ordain in order to be a work nun. But in order to be a nun in the West, I have done what I've needed to do in order to support the community. Now, somebody pointed out to me that Bhikkhu Bodhi has never once organized a single work project. And the way you get a Bhikkhu Bodhi is is that you put him in a place where he is totally supported to do exactly what he does best. But in the West, we are starting with nothing. And the infrastructure is very, very, very thin. And the people who understand or value monastics is very few. And so we have to do what we need to do in order to live. And so there's large numbers of nuns who are handling money and driving cars and storing food and cooking for themselves because they're not in situations where they can figure out how to do it differently. What do you do? How do you respond to that? I mean, the Alliance for the Bhikkhuni is a wonderful organization because it's interested in all of the Bhikkhunis, not just some from a particular tradition or some who are keeping the Vinaya in a particular way. And so they've got an umbrella that's actually interested in everyone's welfare, which is great. But we're needing to build infrastructure in this country to support bhikkhunis in a way that has been going on for thousands of years in the Asian countries. You know, this is not a weekend project. And the education, you know, people don't know what bhikkhunis are, have any sense of why there would be any value in having any association with them. And so there needs to be education and outreach. There needs to be publicity. There needs to be cross-communication. There needs to be invitations. There needs to be books and publishing. There's all kinds of things. And meanwhile, every single one of us has our own practice and our own process and our own internal life that we need to attend to as well. You know, so what I realized, what happened for me, was I came out of England with way, way, way too many things that I was dealing with. No infrastructure, no support system, no group that was supporting me, having to build all of it myself and completely overextended. And so I realized, well, yeah, I think the vision that I have is an important one. But in order for me to realize that, I need a team of people who are willing to see that it happen. You know, because for me, I'm not just interested in a training, a training monastery for nuns. I'm interested in a Dhamma village. I'm interested in a place where people with many different interests and precept levels come together to support each other in practicing. Not at the expense of the monastics, but in support of the monastics. Not where the monastics are holding all of the duties and responsibilities and making it happen for everyone, but where people are doing this in support of each other. Where people are respecting each other's practice and waking up together. But there's just no way I can do that by myself. You know, that'll take a little community to make that happen. 
So, you know, it takes me a little bit of time to regroup and figure out what I need to do and just to wait and see. You know, I will be a hermit nun until I am with other like-minded nuns and other monastics who I feel a resonance with to move forward with the same kind of values. And until then, I'll spend time with other groups of sisters in different places that I can have time with my sisters and learn with each other and grow with each other and share with each other until something else emerges. But until, I'll be by myself. And that feels right. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.